0: So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting.
1: It brings awareness to to non-hunters
0: that it's it's more than just killing animals.
1: How do I start
0: it? Brittany My name. My name.
1: Does my hair look okay? It's
0: fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Luke Hilgerman is the president and CEO of Hunter Nation. Essentially, think of Hunter Nation as an organization that is solely focused on fighting for hunter rights. They got involved in the wolf uh, debacle in Wisconsin. They got involved in a very small municipal county issue in Georgia. They got involved uh, from a Virginia predator calling contest uh, scenario. They are working behind the scenes also on understanding how to increase the voter block of hunters. That is their world. That's the world that they want to live in. I wanted to have this conversation with Luke so that you can get to know Luke better and you can get to know what Hunter Nation is better so that you can make up your own mind of what it is, what it's trying to do, and how you can get involved. It just You're complaining about a bloody blizzard, and you live in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, kind of goes hand in hand, I guess.
0: Yeah, I'm not complaining. I live on the, on the coast of Mississippi. It's freezing right now, okay? It's 41 degrees. I'm allowed to complain because that's not what we used to. All right.
1: Now well, you, you got me there, man. I just, uh, it's been a long winter. I'm ready for it to be done. And we kind of we are in this pattern, what we call fool spring, where it's like going to be 50 degrees tomorrow. But today it's uh, 26, and we got six inches of fresh snow on the ground. So. Gosh, dang. Such is life.
0: Yeah, such is life, man. No, weather is uh, – it's crazy. Memphis got five and a half inches in this fricking late winter. That's crazy, man. That's nuts. Well, Luke Hilgeman. if people do not know who Luke Hilgeman is, uh, number one, um, if you've never met Luke Hilgerman, he's probably the biggest man you'll ever meet. Uh, at least he's one of the biggest men I've ever met uh um luke will you introduce yourself please
1: yeah absolutely uh, my name is luke Hilgeman, and i'm the ceo and president of hunter nation uh, but that's my day job and i guess what i love to do more than anything is spend time in the outdoors with my wife my family we have three kids the oldest of which is uh, going to turn 16 here next month which is a little scary but uh hopefully all of the slop and messiness will be off the road before he takes over but uh i just love hunting man and that's how i got involved with hunter nation and that's what i'm pleasured and privileged to do every day of my life now is fight to protect the future of these traditions that i love so much
0: mm-hmm. luke did you, did you grow up a hunter
1: i did yeah i had the good fortune of being raised here in wisconsin around a hunting family uh, my dad uh, was a, a hunter not as hardcore and committed as uh, some of my uncles and my grandpa were but still made the the steps to get me out there at a young age to follow him into the woods, be a part of the family's hunting experiences, and uh, I was bit by the bug at an early age and have been doing it ever since.
0: Did you do those like traditional Wisconsin deer camps that the whole family was in?
1: Absolutely, man. We uh, remember sitting around the uh, breakfast table with my uncles, we had eight or nine uncles on my mom's side of the family that we hunted with, and it was always a privilege as a kid to wake up and even before I got to go out and hunt with them, just listening to the stories and hearing about the camaraderie and all of the traditions that are a part of that, the frying bologna and all of the wonderful things that uh, are my young memories of deer camp. I, I definitely got to be a part of it.
0: Was it just like deer hunting was the thing or was there other things like duck hunting and squirrel hunting and dogs and stuff like that? Or Was it just like, it's white tailed deer?
1: Yeah, it's white-tailed deer. I mean, we we did some rabbit hunting and, uh, you know, turkeys were around, but they didn't really, uh, we didn't have a hunting season when I was growing up here. Another conservation success story. But uh, yeah, it was pretty much a deer camp. Uh, that was what we look forward to every year. And uh, then we fished all, all summer long, of course. And then we do this thing called ice fishing, which uh, people find kind of funny, but hard water fishing is the other thing that I'm addicted to. And probably- hard
0: water fishing yeah
1: man yeah yeah
0: so this is i have this running argument with yeah. my podcast producer he lives in alaska and he's like we got great ice fishing i said alaska it's ice like i'm a south african i'm not born for the cold i don't live in wisconsin right I said, how does it not just, like, number one, get super messy, right? And he was like, oh, no, you, you, you know, or super cold. And he's like, no, you've got this hut and, you know, you've got this shack. And I was like, okay. And it's warm inside, right? And he goes, yeah, it's warm inside. I said, okay. Ice melts above a certain temperature, right? He said, Yes oh, no, 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 the snow insulates. I said, I, it doesn't matter. It's 60 degrees in your tent. It's 20 outside. How is it not just becoming one big sloppy mess? Luke, explain this to me.
1: Uh, well, it's called a shovel, and you clear out the snow. And then, yeah, I mean, usually if you stay out there long enough, probably by just after lunchtime, your your boots are three inches of water because if you do it right, you have it 65 or 70 in your in your shack. So, yeah, you're going to have some water, but it's worth it. It's best fishing you can get
0: i have never tried it i do want to try it i really do and i do you use one of those like count those things that oh yeah that tell you where the fish is <laughs>
1: yeah yeah we get pretty uh technological with our ice fishing even more so than fishing out of the boat because we know where they are then but yeah we uh we use the vexlars, we use the spot uh, that we have this new one that basically you stick it down the hole and it could tell you where the fish are based on the thermal imaging so it's uh it's pretty sophisticated but it it's a darn good way to pass the time in the winter when it's 20 below
0: zero. So, you know, like unlike fishing, again, I'm, I'm fascinated because it just scientifically, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. Because when you fish, you obviously have an opportunity to fish a broad amount of water, a large acreage of water. When you're ice fishing, you are fishing a six inch diameter hole.
1: Yep, or eight inch or ten inch. That's about as big as you get. But I mean, it's all about finding the structure that the fish are holding on, and then you, you know, we pattern it. So we try and spread out our holes and figure out where the fish are at right away when we get out there in the morning. And then they just they're they're fish. So if you're putting something down the hole that they can eat, and there's not a lot of food for them to eat in the wintertime, you're gonna have some good luck.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, you have three children.
1: Yes, sir. Yep.
0: All F- three hunt.
1: Yes, all three. Our daughter is the youngest. We have two boys. Uh, Cole's going to be 16. Caleb is 13. and Kenley was the youngest, and she's our daughter, and she was the last one to take up the sport of hunting, and she had her first successful deer hunt with us on our farm here in Wisconsin last fall,
0: which was incredible. Is your dad still alive? Yeah, yep. Does he interact in those hunts?
1: Absolutely, man. Yep. Yep. And that is the sweet spot of life for me is to be able to sit in the stand with him. And we, we kind of cheat. We have enclosed <laughs> stands. We actually stole my mom's garden gazebo. <laughs> a grand idea.
0: Please tell me you put it on stilts.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We put it on a 20 foot stilt that, uh, yeah, dad and I dragged that thing back there. We actually had a neighbor who had a crane and we put that baby up there. And that is like the, that's my dad's hunting stand that, We've had out there now for 20 plus years, and uh, that's where my daughter killed her first year. That's actually where both of my sons killed their first year here in Wisconsin, and uh, it's it's awesome just to be able to share those memories with them.
0: So those traditions, yep, those memories, those are essentially, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, that's like the quintessential foundational piece for why we fight for hunting. Is yeah, that what you agree? What would you say?
1: Yeah, I can't put it any clearer than that, man. I mean, it's it is those moments, you know. For me, I'm a spiritual guy, and so when I talk about it, to me, it's when I'm in the stand and and you can see the woods come alive, and you hear God's creation all around you, like it's it's at that moment where you just can't deny that there's a higher power that's created all of this for us, and to share that with your kids and to then share that with your dad. And your uncles and the next to the first generations of hunters who got us involved in this sport it is uh i mean that those are the moments those are the ones that i will remember for the rest of my life i know that my kids will remember for the rest of my life or the rest of their lives and hopefully their kids will one day too and i think that is what we're fighting for every day man
0: yeah you're you're a hundred percent um it's uh it's unfortunate in my from a blood origins perspective, last year, I hunted three days yeah. myself. Okay. I hunted half a day with my kids in a year. And it's almost hypocritical of me, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pushing. This is the thing that you need to do. And, and yet myself, I'm not doing it. Um, that's just a life balance issue that I think a lot of us have.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, for me too, it's, it's my wife giving us that opportunity and wanting our children to experience that with me because she doesn't hunt. Um, she's not somebody that um, she just doesn't hunt. She said, I don't think I could kill an animal, but I have nothing against it that we do. And in my household, I'm sure I'm similar to a lot of people that you know live around here, live this hunting lifestyle like we do. About 90 percent of the meat that we eat in our family is animals and game that we've killed. But she loves cooking it. And that's her whole deal is she said, you know, bring me the back straps and she'll make it into an incredible meal that feeds our family, feeds our friends, feeds our neighbors. And that's where she derives her joy from the whole experience. And that's pretty cool too.
0: So she was she wasn't raised a hunter at all. Her family didn't hunt? You
1: no, know, her dad did a little bit, but again, he was a paper mill worker. So he was, you know, on on most of the time when uh, most of Wisconsin's out hunting, he was the guy that took the swing shifts and did what he mm-hmm. had to support the family, and uh, just mm-hmm. never got into it as a as as a kid growing up like I did.
0: If you had to ask your wife, and if you thought through, what would you say? Did you think her perspective on hunting has changed? Did she have a maybe a different perspective on hunting when she met you, or you know, what no, I'm trying I to think, ask you. No,
1: I think she was probably indifferent because it's not like it was foreign to her. We were high school sweethearts. We grew up together our parents were on the same bowling team. That's, uh, (laughs) you know, um, so it's similar life experiences and similar background, but I think, yeah, it has changed because when, you know, we started dating and um, we're getting serious about life, we talked about it. And I said like, look, babe, this is something that I love to do. And you know, I'm going to be gone a significant amount of time in the fall because that's what I do. I go out to my tree stand and I'm going to be hunting, you know, two or three weeks straight, chasing a buck or, um, you know, in a duck line, doing some duck hunting with my buddies. And that's just who I am. And she said, oh, of course I know that. Um, and I said, well, are you okay with it? And She said, yeah, of course I am. But she said, just make sure you got to tell me where you're going and when, and make sure that we're in communication with that, because that's important. And I said, okay. And I think her perspective has changed on it a lot. Now seeing our kids um, sharing those moments that I shared with you earlier, where now I have a middle son, Caleb, who is just diehard hunter. And he will beat me to the door in the morning to try and get out there and go with me. And then our older son is more, he's more mechanically inclined and wants to weld and, you know, woodwork and do all those things that he's experiencing in school right now. And so trying to keep him involved, I think is, she's really stepped up there and said, no, these moments are really important for you, Cole. And you got to get out there with your dad and your brother and your sister and go, go share it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it definitely has.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm so uh you introduced yourself as the president and um ceo Yep. was it ceo yes yes sir of hunter nation for those that may not be familiar with hunter nation who you are can you just a little bit of a history sure so hunter nation was
1: started about six years ago Um, it was a joint effort between a guy named keith mark who uh, used to host the mcmillan river adventures still owns mcmillan river adventures um, him and uh, Ted Nugent, uh, Don Pay was another gentleman that was involved, a Western hunting advocate. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. was in the moose camp when I heard this story anyway about how it was founded. And those gentlemen were sitting around after a successful moose hunt and talking about, okay, what are we going to do to keep protecting the future of, of these experiences, similar to what you and I just talked about? And I think all of them came to the realization that we've all been members, they've all been members of, you know, hunting organizations, the alphabet soups of the world. Um, And they all have important, very important missions, and they're very good at them. But there didn't seem to be somebody that was out there every day fighting for the American hunter. And that's what this idea came out of, is we needed to have a unified voice out there fighting to protect the American hunter. That, um, you know, again, our bylaws are very particular. Our vision is very specific that if it's legal and ethical and it's allowed under the law, we'll be there to fight to protect it. Um, And that you know hasn't always been the MO of a lot of hunting organizations, unfortunately, in my opinion. And so that's what we do. We're out there every day fighting to protect the future of hunting. And the biggest, biggest thing I think that the group realized very early on is that hunters aren't participating enough in our voting. And that, um, on unfortunately-
0: general voting, not just regulation, hunting, Correct. regulation, voting.
1: Correct. Yes. Generally voting, picking our leaders, our elected uh, officials at all levels of government hunters are sitting it out. And so when I got involved, that's actually how I got involved with the organization. I was uh, working out in my basement one morning and saw their ad God, family, country, and protecting the future of hunting. If you believe in these things, get involved and make sure you vote. And I was like, "Vote? What do you mean? Like, I'm I'm a hunter. I've worked in politics pretty much my entire adult life. I've always thought that hunters were a very reliable voting block." And so I met with them and met with some of the founders of the group and the then CEO at the time, and asked, "What are you trying to solve for?" And that's what they told me: hunters aren't voting. And I didn't believe it. To be honest, I was pretty skeptical when they told me that. And so I got home from those initial meetings, and my background is uh, government politics. I've been in this. Business for about twenty years of my life, and I pulled the data um, just on my home state of Wisconsin, and we have about eight hundred thousand licensed hunters in Wisconsin. And what I found was startling: three hundred and sixty thousand of them hadn't voted in the last two election cycles, and that was in twenty twenty when we first pulled that data. How do so, how
0: you? How can you correlate those two things together? I'm intrigued. How, how does does some because nobody checks a box at the voting ballot that says yeah. I'm a hunter, I'm not a hunter. Yeah, so we,
1: again, my previous life, I ran an organization called Americans for Prosperity. It was one of the largest uh, nonprofits in the country that was focused on economic freedom, protecting economic freedom and conservative economic issues. And David and Charles Koch were the founders of that organization, and they had created a data capability called I-360. And when I took over as the CEO of, of Americans for Prosperity, I helped them build that out in 36 different states, collecting millions of files of data on all of the um, eligible voters in in America and that includes hunters and so the data that I pulled was I-360 data which is consumer based and you're right um, it's nearly impossible to go to a state and request like here in Wisconsin or go go to Texas or Mississippi wherever and request a list of hunters um, because they're terrible at record keeping number one. And then number two, it's a lot of them like here in Wisconsin, I went and actually asked for that list and they said, well, it's only about 50,000 names. And I said, what do you mean? It's 50,000 names because there is a checkbox, Like you said, you have to check mm-hmm. the box. that says you can, you can make my information publicly available when I buy my license. And only like 3% of the population of hunters in Wisconsin does check
0: that. the box. Right.
1: <laughs> and so it's all consumer data that this is driven from. And it's, it's very accurate, um, you know, out of the about 800,000 hunters here in Wisconsin, like I said, um, about 700,000 of them have had a license in the last five years. So that's kind of the, the parameters that we look at. And uh, that, that's where it came from. And then, as I said, well, is Wisconsin different? And I started pulling all of these other states in the Midwest where I know there's large populations of hunters and saw that same trend, less than half of licensed hunters um, have voted in the last eight years. And so they're some of the first people that will sit around and complain about what's happening in politics and government, but then not to go and actually take that action uh, to be able to select and elect our our leaders who are making these decisions for us, I think is a fatal flaw. And I think one of the biggest threats to the American honor.
0: I am I am an American citizen, proud to be an American citizen. However, I'm very naive to American politics. Okay. And so, and maybe this is the case for, And I don't want to hypothesize why that is the case that the Hunter does not vote. But for instance, me in Mississippi, Mm -hmm. right? My vote really doesn't count at the end of the day. Like in terms of the broad scheme of electoral college votes to determine the big, it doesn't matter. So I'm like, why it's almost a pointless vote. And so, how prevalent is that, you know, extension? Because that's me, right? But maybe that's happening in Iowa and, and big swing states, as you said, like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio.
1: Yep, that that is the number one thing. And and we did multiple realms uh, rounds of polling, focus grouping, and just trying to understand why is this this happening? Why aren't hunters voting? And that's number one. The number one answer we got back: my vote doesn't matter. And Yeah, Like you said, in Mississippi, I can kind of see where people are making that determination. But at the same time, there are a lot of threats that are happening in all 50 states, right? And that's my response back. If you don't think your vote matters and you want to sit out politics, well, as an American hunter, I could tell you that politics is coming for you, whether you like it or not. And I think we saw that during the pandemic. Um, You know, they were one of the first things that governors in all 50 states tried to shut down was public hunting access.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: It was bizarre to see this, right? Like if anything, during that episode in American history, if we needed to get outdoors, there was no greater time than that. Talk about Mm -hmm. social distancing. There's no greater place to do it than in the outdoors. But yet we had almost all, we had to send a letter to all 50 governors across the country who were trying to close down public hunting grounds because they didn't want people associating. And it's like, if you don't think they're coming for you, you're just wrong. Um, and so that, that, I get it. I understand where people are coming from. They don't think their vote matters, but when you see what's happening in the policy realm that's impacting the future of hunting, boy, we have got to wake up and we have got to get active or they're going to come for it all.
0: Mm-hmm. Would it be a fair, and again, I'm not not too familiar with the, the ins and outs of this, but I'm going to... Is it would it be fair that the hunter nation is almost like for for hunting advocacy or fighting for hunter rights, like you said, uh-huh. is equivalent to the NRA side of the two-way argument? Is that a fair?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of similarities, right? Um, you know, number one, we're going to need and we we've got to have a strong NRA. So whatever's happening over there, and and we stand with them um, in their lawsuit that. They're, they're being basically tried to be closed by the attorney general in New York. And we need a strong NRA because they're the second amendment is intrinsically, is intrinsically locked to hunting. There is no way that we can have hunting the way that we have it in America without the second amendment.
0: Mm -hmm. But at
1: the same time, there is a lot of people. There are a lot of people that are shooters, right? Just traditional shooters. they like to go out. They like to plink. They like to shoot. They like to, you know, practice their second amendment that way. But there are also a lot of people who hunt and they don't, you know, shoot a lot outside of they go and take their deer rifle or their shotgun and pattern it for turkey season. Um, But they're not out there, you know, putting rounds down range a lot of the time. And so I think it's important that we have a strong NRA. But I think I see Hunter Nation as, as absolutely imperative for the hunting side of that equation to be able to fight and advocate for policies that protect the future of hunting. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to put it. Around.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm What have been some of the big things that you guys have gotten involved with in the last, let's say, two years? Let's talk. Let's start there, and then we'll talk to what's coming.
1: Yeah. So two two years, I think, the policy world for us. We again, when I got involved as CEO of Hunter Nation, um, we we jumped right into. And when
0: was that, Luke? Two years ago? Was, yeah. Three 2020, years
1: ago. January twenty twenty was when I became CEO, and so right out of the gate. Um, you know, I, I pushed the team hard to say, okay, we, we know there's millions of hunters across the country who aren't voting. What do we do to get out there and reach these guys and gals and make them aware of this, of why their voice matters? And so we did, we, we launched a project called Hunt the Vote, and we're launching that again this year. So if your listeners want to check it out, it's go to huntthevote.org and this was re- literally based off of Rock the Vote which was a successful activation still a successful activation program for people who are more liberal leaning in the country and they had a number of rock stars and celebrities and other folks that were involved with Rock the Vote and I when I came to Hunter Nation I was amazed at the number of hunting influencers real celebrities Ted Nugent Mike Waddell you know Henry and LaKeisha I mean pretty much the top 20 names in the outdoor TV industry, are members of our advisory board at at Hunter Nation. And I said, well, I think there's got to be a way for us to use the influencers that we have, because the cool thing is these influencers all have audiences of people they're reaching on a daily basis. So collectively, with our Hunter Nation advisory board, we have more than 50 million Americans who tune into them on their Facebook feed or their Twitter feed or their Instagram or whatever it may be. And I said, we have got to be able to reach them through this network of people. So we launched a hunt the vote. We had our first official event here in Wisconsin. Um, We did it in in a farm field in Wausau, Wisconsin. We flew Ted Nugent in because, again, Ted was the top celebrity that we had. He's got three and a half million followers on Facebook. And when you want the hunting and outdoor world to react and respond, nobody does it better than Uncle Ted. That's Mm -hmm. the truth. And so we brought Ted in and we had a big event that we were doing. Um, Hump the Vote. We were launching it in Wisconsin. And we had uh, 1,500 people that came out to that event. And for me, sitting behind the scenes, seeing the number of RSVPs that were coming in, we targeted this specific group of voters, hunters who hadn't voted in the last two election cycles. And out of the 1,500 RSVPs we had for that first event, 1,300 of them fit the bill of people who hadn't voted in the last two elections. So we get out there on stage. I took to the mic and I said, how many of you folks out here are hunters and everybody's hand went up and they were all screaming and waving and people were excited to see Ted. It wasn't because I was out on stage, unfortunately, but um, I said, so how many of you guys voted? And everybody started, you know, waving their American flags and they were all excited. Oh yeah, we vote. And I said, well, you guys are all full of it because I have the data right here and out of the 1500 of you that are joining us here tonight, 1300 of you haven't voted in the last two election cycles. And it was like white ghost faces, like look across the aisle. Like oh, the like
0: principal just out. called. Yeah, principal right. just called them out.
1: Yeah, right. No way. And I said, but we can change that because, again, previous life I'd run pretty successful, um, you know, co- conservative organizations that focused on activating voters. And we knew back then that if we could get these people to sign a pledge, right, I, I pledge that I'm going to vote, or I pledge that I'm going to get involved in this policy fight what we saw across multiple election cycles is people were about 33% more likely to get involved and follow through and do that action. And so we had them pull up their phones right there. We created this awesome app huntthevote.org again. People can go there and check it out and it helps you just cut through the the it's as simple as it can be. The complexities of that's the other thing we heard a lot of from hunters when we did the initial research is it's too complex. I don't I I don't want to get involved. I don't know how to you know, get get my registration. I don't know how to request an absentee ballot. And so we created a resource that literally my my nine-year-old daughter could go on and figure out how to register to vote. Not that I would do that, <laughs> but that's what we created. <laughs> and so right there on that day, we had 1,500 people signed our hunt the vote pledge by pulling up their cell phones. And like I said, about 1,300 of them fit the bill. The cool thing then is we thought we were going to, you know, use that same model and go and replicate it across the country, have these big events and get our people out there to, to sign the pledge and commit their vote. And everywhere we went, we got kept getting shut down by the pandemic. And so we took it back and all went online. We, we did simulcasts on Facebook. We did a bunch of zoom stuff. And every time we try to have that same recipe, um, you know, talking about the importance of why hunters need to vote, sharing a hunting story with one of our hunting celebrities, and then having them sign the pledge right there on the spot. And we replicated that. I think we had more than 30 of those uh, simulcast hunt-the-vote events. And we got 250,000 mm-hmm. people to sign the hunt-the-vote pledge. So I knew we were on to something. But I knew that in order for us to have to protect the future of hunting, we needed to reach a lot more people. Because 250,000 wasn't enough.
0: sure. sure. So we
1: passed a wider net. And we targeted 2.3 million hunters in eight priority states across the country with that same message, right? Direct to their cell phones talking about the importance of registering to vote and voting. Never once telling them who to vote for, right? Mm-hmm. We're a partisan organization. We don't do that. Of course, hunters largely do lean conservative. So there's a pretty good chance that most of them that receive that message are going to be conservative voters. But at the same time, we're not telling them who to vote for. That's all, all up to them. All right. And so we targeted 2.3 million of them. And then uh, we did the hard analysis after the election. Um, Obviously didn't, in my opinion, didn't get the president we were hoping for to protect the future of hunting. Um, But we still had a pretty significant impact. We turned out 464,000 hunters who hadn't voted in the last two elections signed or or actually filled out their first ballot. So pretty successful first activation for us. And uh, that's kind of where it all started. And then from a policy perspective, because again, um, if we're, we're not genuine about fighting for hunting and we're just another fly, fly by night political organization that comes in right. and, and cycle and tells them, you know, hey, make sure you go and vote. And then we go away until the next election. Right. And that to me is not being a genuine um, organization that's focused on protecting hunting. And so we push really hard with the team to identify a number of areas of policy that we knew we could have an impact in. Um, and because I live in Wisconsin and worked in Wisconsin pretty much my whole adult life, I have a lot of connections in, in politics and government. And we jumped in um, and it had a big impact in the Wisconsin wolf hunting fight. Mm-hmm. So for your listeners and folks that are, you know, um, follow this, um, we went in, we had a statutory required law that said when the wolf is removed from the Endangered Species Act, Wisconsin must hold a hunt. It shall hold a wolf hunt. Right. Our governor decided, again, um, that he was not going to follow that and said, we'll put that off and we'll get to it next year. And we knew what that was. It was a delay tactic because there was also a lawsuit that was coming down in California, um, basically threatening to put the wolf back on the endangered species list and taking away our right to hunt them in Wisconsin. And so we jumped into action and I worked with an organization called Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty which is a conservative-leaning legal project, and uh, they filed suit on our behalf. And we not only sued the state of Wisconsin because they were violating the statutory required requirement for wolf hunting, we also sued them on the grounds that we have a state-based constitutional right to hunt law, and that was being infringed because me as a citizen of Wisconsin, I wasn't being allowed to purchase a wolf hunting license. hmm so we did that and uh, we took it to Jefferson County and the judge there agreed with us on, not only on the, the count of the statutory law, but also on the constitutional right to hunt. And so we won that suit um, and that forced the DNR to immediately, the state of Wisconsin, to immediately open a wolf hunting season last spring. And again, this is just in a, a microcosm of, I think, where we are um, with the hunting public. The the gray wolf should be seen as an American conservation success story, right?
0: Right, right.
1: The proliferation of the wolf coming back after it was decimated um, by our ancestors back in the early 1900s was probably the last time we had native wolves in Wisconsin. But yet now today, after hunter dollars from sportsmen of all walks of life over the last hundred years, thanks to a program called Pittman Robertson, um, that basically puts a tax on every round of ammunition, every gun,
0: mm-hmm. every
1: fishing pool, every fishing reel, everything else that we use in these sports goes back into this fund that is then delivered back to the States for conservation. And the wolf is the recipient of those dollars. That's how we even have the opportunity to hunt an animal like a wolf in Wisconsin. And so to see everything that's happened now, right, with the anti-hunting crowds in one corner and the hunters over here and kind of the general public in the middle, not really understanding what's going on. I think number one is just to celebrate the success that we've had to bring a species back from the brink of extinction and now have huntable numbers of that species here in Wisconsin is a success story and one that mm-hmm. should be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that story is being told enough or at all, quite honestly. And uh, so that's one thing. But the second thing is we, we set up a state management goal of having 300 wolves in the state of Wisconsin. The last population estimate that we had in Wisconsin for wolves, even after the hunting season, was about 1,500 of those animals running around in the state. Now, you can say what you want about the population estimates, but we'll take them at their word and say it's 1,200. The management goal is 300. So clearly, we have a surplus of those animals that need to be managed. Because again, here in Wisconsin, since our last hunt in 2014, we'd paid out more than $2.3 million in depredation payments to farmers, um, pet owners, Mm -hmm. livestock owners, and other folks who had wolves come onto their property and kill their dog or kill their sheep or kill their cows. Wisconsin's a huge ag state. And if we as hunters don't responsibly manage that population of predators, bad outcomes are going to happen. People are going to shoot them. You know, people are going to trap them. People are going to do things to keep them away from their land and their animals. And so we think hunters have a role to play in that. And that's the argument that we made in front of the judge, and he he agreed with us. So fast forward to a couple of weeks ago here. We, we actually have an activist judge in California who I mentioned earlier was talking about. Yeah,
0: and the wolves got relisted.
1: They got relisted.
0: Wolves are relisted,
1: taking away the hunters' rights to manage that population of predators. And so here we are again, that that's, you know, it's just this nasty spiral that keeps turning. And the, unfortunately, the, the real victim in all of this is going to be the wolf because har- again, pet owners, farmers, ranchers, these people that make a living off of, of these uh, you know, raising these critters, they're not going to allow a wolf to come on their property. And, you know, like I talked to a family here about 30 miles South of where I live, they had three years in a row, their entire, um, Basically, all of their sheep were eaten by wolves three years in a row. Their lamb crop? Yeah, their lamb crop was all Mm -hmm. decimated by wolves. And they said, how are we supposed to do this? This is like third generation farm. And the wolves are coming here and just indiscriminately eating all of our lambs. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people like that? Mm -hmm. And to me, I think that's the biggest opportunity we have as hunters is to help own the narrative around why we need to be responsible managers of all of our Game populations, not just wolves, not just deer, not turkeys, but we as hunters have a role to play in that.
0: Let me uh, be sure to ask this question because it would um, be—it's just a good question to ask people that are pro wolf management. You're not—you're not saying you want to exterminate the wolf again, right, Luke? Not even close. No, we think the wolf is a
1: a viable member of our ecosystem. We're not an organization that thinks that they shouldn't be here. Um, We know that they have a purpose and a place and. Again, we just know that there's a responsible number of those animals that we have to keep in check. Otherwise, they have bad outcomes with deer, turkeys, you know, all all of the species of animals that we try and raise here and make a living off of cows, horses, sheep, pigs, all of it. They're in jeopardy.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we released a podcast with a guy called Dave Gittleson. The Gittleson Ranch is the first ranch in the state of Colorado to have wolves take cows on. The pack that's established is right outside the ranch. And he was talking about, he was a very sad and despondent individual. And in that he was like you, he didn't want to exterminate the wolf. But he was like, I want you to understand what it's like for me because I'm handcuffed. Like I have, he was almost desperate. Like, give me a tool that I can use. Let me, help me help you. Help me help the wolf in that they're not worried about humans. They come around the house all the time. And they're doing a 24-7 watch of the cows. They're in the cows every night. Two, you know, two sections of, of, um, what's the military term? Two watches, right? One watch from, you know, dusk to midnight, midnight to sunrise. Um, So, yeah, management is absolutely key for wildlife, as you said.
1: Yeah, and so that was the, the first kind of big policy fight that we engaged in. And then we, you know, took a look at it. Where is the the opposition to our lifestyle, right? The Humane Society of the United States, who has a 162 million dollar a year budget, what are their top policy priorities? And we looked at PETA and asked the same question: Where are they trying to end or eradicate or ban hunting that we think is legal, that we know is legal and ethical? And one of the biggest spots we saw was in Virginia, where they were trying to end uh, predator calling competitions, which are basically um, competitions that allow people who come in and, and hunt and shoot a number of coyotes or bobcats or foxes or whatever it may be. And so we engaged on that. And and again, this is one that I think there's a lot of hunters that see this as, you know, they see a pile of coyotes um, and, and they don't, um, they're probably not completely on board with us being in this fight. But to me, we have to understand where our opposition is going. And they've through HSUS and PETA have created this thing called Project Coyote. And their goal is to ban all of these predator calling competitions and predator hunting in general. And again, I, I don't I'm not somebody that's a um, you know, conspiracy theorist, but I ask myself, why are they doing that? What is their intent? What is their goal? And to me, it's because they know that if they are successful in banning predator hunting, the predators are going to then kill off a number of the wild game that we as hunters like to hunt, right? the deer the turkeys, um, the ducks, the geese, the other things that we wild game hunters like to bring home and share with our families. And to me, I just see that as a natural extension of their plan is to try and end hunting, right? HSUS, PETA, a number of these anti-hunting groups have it in their mission statement that they're going to end big game hunting in in North America. And to me, that's why we, we engaged on this one, because Again, it's legal and ethical. Um, These are people that are buying a license. They are doing a service um, to manage a predator population that is growing beyond uh, the management goals of that state, and they should be allowed to do that under the law. And so we engaged in that fight in Virginia, um, and it was at the committee level that that happened. And we successfully helped um, an organization out there that we had partnered with uh, block the predator calling competition ban from moving forward. So that was kind of the first two that we engaged in. And then the, this one just blows my mind still, but we, uh, we looked at Georgia and Michael Waddell of all people, the bone collector who is uh, you know on our advisory committee and, and a close friend of, of all of us reached out and he said, guys, I can't believe what they're trying to do, but they're trying to ban municipal deer hunting in the County in Georgia in which I live. And I said, well, what, what's the deal, man? Like what, what's going on? And this, county commissioner had gotten his direct public comment was that he had gotten outreach from a constituent who was complaining about archery implements being left in the streets of their county and and that somehow it was archery hunters who were making the streets more dangerous not drug dealers and criminals and that type of thing and so he came up with the idea that he was going to ban municipal deer hunting in this county. Now, this is a, a rural county in in Georgia that, again, if they're, they're, we're going to say that if you didn't own 10 acres of land in this county, that you couldn't hunt. And these folks are, again, these people are the ones that hunt down there are doing it for sustenance. They're doing it to provide food for themselves and their families. Sure, sure. And if you take away that opportunity from them, what are they going to do? And so we sprang into action and we worked with Michael and we... Uh, started dumping phone calls into the county commissioner's office who was pushing this. And in about 48 hours, I think we had put place more than 10,000 phone calls through our system that we use. <laughs> and, and again, these are our Georgia hunters that we reached out to based on our data, getting them, Hey, did you know that they're trying to ban municipal deer hunting in Macomb County? We need you to jump in. And they did. And it was awesome. One of the best things I've had so far, other than, um, the call about Wisconsin's wolf hunt was 48 hours after we started that campaign, I called that County commissioner and he answered his phone credit to him. And I said, sir, this is Luke Hilgeman I'm the president of Hunter Nation. You've probably been hearing a lot from us lately. And he said, sir, I've never heard more from another organization than you. And I said, well, can you share with me the status of uh, your municipal deer hunting proposal that you were going to bring forward. And he said, it is indefinitely postponed That (laughs) will never be moving forward. And so again, it's, it's just those experiences that number one, when we can unite as hunters and we can have a collective voice around protecting the future of hunting, um, we can win any of these battles, but it's when we divide ourselves and get in our separate camps because the bow hunters have the right to bow hunt and the crossbow hunters don't have the right to hunt and the, Duck hunters are superior to the deer hunters and all of that kind of stuff. That to me is the other biggest threat that we have to the American hunting lifestyle. It's it's apathy because we're not participating in picking our elected leaders and it's division and it's internal division. Mm-hmm. Right? I, as a bow hunter, should have as much care about allowing a bear hunter to go to the woods and participate in their passion as much as I do go to the woods with my kids and go bow hunting.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because again, in that united voice of the American hunter, that's where the real power is. And again, if we can figure out ways to work together and just protect whatever it is that you like to do, again, from Hunter Nation's perspective, if it's legal and it's ethical and it's allowed under the law, you should have a right to participate in that sport because that's the American lifestyle that we live. Mm-hmm. so that's that's again those are the experiences that we've had and uh unfortunately a lot of the too many of those fights have been defensive right we're playing defense to block organizations that are trying to ban hunting and not mm-hmm. doing more offensively to be able to create more opportunity in the outdoors for people to experience this amazing lifestyle
0: let me ask ask this this may be throwing a little bit of a wrench in the works but i'm, I'm curious so a, a very good friend of mike Waddell's is. Travis T-Bone Turner. And we did his Blood Origins episode. And Travis said, he added one thing, and I want to get your reaction to it. He said, if it's legal and it's ethical, and the person responsibly does it, we should celebrate it. Yeah. Responsibility is a huge thing, Luke, right? Responsibility essentially, in my view, responsibility is almost thinking thinking being the operative term here of what ammunition or fuel are you giving to the other side? So using a predator calling contest, I'm with you if it's legal and it's ethical, you know, and we all know there's bad apples, right? There's bad apples in every community There's bad apples in the predator hunting community. For sure. But is it responsible in terms of the imagery, for instance, like a pile of coyotes Mm -hmm. and putting that out there knowing full well, that it's going to be used against us. 1,000% correct, right? Yeah. No, I mean,
1: and I 100% agree. And and that's, you'd be, you'd be happy to know that when we worked with the group in Virginia that sponsors a lot of these contests, they know that, right? They're the ones that called it out specifically and said, we know we have an image problem, right? But at the end of the day, they need to do a better job of policing that, right? 100%. Ad- that to be something that is blown up out there on social media and cast around in all of the media interviews that they do on this and this is the founders of the organizations talking about this so it's not us they understand that and they agree but i couldn't agree more right like the other part of what i've experienced now in two and a half years that i've been doing this is we do a really poor job of owning the narrative about what hunting is And, and robbie kudos to you because i think you have one of the most effective storytelling aspects of what true hunting is and and the pleasures that we draw from it and why it's such an important an important part of the american culture so kudos to you thank you i think we do a terrible job as hunters of celebrating what hunting really is the essence of the hunt and not that it's just about going out and taking killing some animal and posting it up there on social media cuz to me Sure, I share pictures of deer that my my family and I have killed. But at the same time, like that's the last part of the celebration. It's all of the experiences that we've just talked through for the last 40 minutes about what lead up to it that get me excited, that keep me mm-hmm. going back out there to the field. And I think going back to that responsibility idea that T-Bone offered is we all have a responsibility. All of us who participate in this sport to do it in a way that says, Again, we know there are 15 million American hunters, Okay, by of numbers, 15 million American hunters. There's probably 15 million anti-hunters in America. And then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who are agnostic or neutral to hunting, or they maybe lean this way or they lean that way. But at the end of the day, it's not something they think about. We have a responsibility to keep those people neutral so that the numbers of anti-hunters don't grow as a result of us participating in these sports. to Mm -hmm. me that that's one of the biggest things that i'm always going to be focused on as long as i'm a part of hunter nation is what are we doing to own the narrative and tell it in a responsible way
0: hundred percent couldn't have said it better couldn't have said it better well if people are interested in getting more information around hunter nation where's the best place for them to go
1: Hunternation.org. nice and simple check out our website follow us online Um, It's pretty exciting stuff. You you ask a little bit about what we're doing in the future. Yeah. Uh, Last week, we were actually testifying in support of legislation to bring back the spring bear hunt in Washington. And then just today, this morning, I was testifying on a bill in Maine to uh, allow Sunday hunting in the state of Maine. There's only two It
0: died in freaking committee. Unbelievable. But It's unbelievable, but here's what I got back. Like, I was like, why is this dying, man? And what I got back was, People – it's the whole private access issue, right? You okay. know this. I'm, I'm I'm, just preaching to the people that are listening to this. But yep. it's like in Maine, if it's not posted, you can hunt it like public even if it's private. Okay. And essentially what the private landowners have said is we just want a day where we know there's no hunters in the field that we can enjoy our private property. And honestly, that makes sense. Sure. It makes sense. But – the whole idea of not being able to hunt on a Sunday from an accessibility perspective, from a barrier of entry perspective in hunting, yes, it, it it's something that's archaic. I but I also get the other side of the, equo- the equation. Sure. Sure. So, again, hunternation.org.
1: Again, We've, we've picked up about 25,000 members since I've uh, taken over as CEO, and we're on a, a great path where people are seeing the value of being an active participant, not only in the sport that we love, and the the passionate pursuit of, of hunting, but also in the passionate pursuit of keeping these hunts and these opportunities available for the next generation. So.
0: And you said, awesome. hunt the vote is going to start this year.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're gearing back up. We just launched it uh, last week, and that again is huntthevote.org. And uh, we're targeting our goal. We we turned out just under a half a million hunters this last year, or in 2020. And our goal this year is to turn out a million hunters to vote their values and protect the future hunting.
0: Fantastic. Luke, always a pleasure, man. We haven't seen each other in a long time. Hopefully our paths cross uh, here shortly.
1: Sounds great. Appreciate it, Robbie. Thank you.
0: All right. Cheers, mate. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.